whilst you're uh, turning that up, can I also welcome those who join us by way of the webcast ministry. You're very welcome this morning. We're glad to know that you tune in. And we pray that as we gather together, the Lord also will be in the midst and that we'll be blessed as we uh, consider his word this morning. So we're reading from Isaiah chapter 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Amen. And we know that the Lord will bless the public reading of His own precious truth. Shall we bow in a word of prayer and commit our time together before the Lord? Our eternal God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this, the morning of Thy day. We thank Thee for the liberty and for the health and the strength that finds us here and enables us to gather one with the other in thy house, the habitation of thy house, the place where thine honor dwelleth. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that for, uh, Lord, the morning worship hour, uh, Lord, for the evening gospel hour, for Sunday school, and for the prayer meetings, we pray that thy presence would be in the midst as thou hast promised. Especially we think of the little ones just now, as they would gather around their teacher's knee. We pray that their little hearts and minds would be blessed of thee to hear the wondrous truths of the Scriptures. Most of all, to see and know and find the Lord Jesus Christ as their own and personal Savior. For this, our class, we pray that, Lord, you would be with us, that you would bless the further reading of thy word. And as we consider the loveliness of our everlasting Redeemer, that, O oh Lord, thou wouldst bless to us, not only for this hour, but for day by day and month by month, 
year by year in thy will. All the benefits that flow from the salvation that is provided in him. O Lord, draw close, we pray of thee. Bless every waiting heart. Bless those who listen in by way of the webcast. We pray that, O Lord, distance may separate us, yet the love of Christ and the loveliness of thy word spread before us will generate that warmth of togetherness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So be in our midst. Help us to worship thee in spirit and in truth. And, O Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, for I ask it all in the Savior's precious and lovely name. Amen. Our text for the class this morning is actually the first three verses of the 61st chapter of Isaiah. And I wonder, would you turn uh, just to Isaiah chapter 61, where you will see very familiar uh, words to those which we have just read. And I trust through our contemplation this morning, our, with the help of God the Holy Ghost, we shall recognize and demonstrate a most welcome and agreeable correlation between the chapter 42, uh, which we have just read together, and these verses in Isaiah chapter 61, which read like this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Amen. And I have entitled the study this morning, From Everlasting, Our Redeemer. From Everlasting, Our Redeemer. And in this 61st chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, also, as also in chapter 42, which we have just read also, we are given a view of the office of Christ as the, the Messiah and as our Redeemer. And it is my intention this morning to examine briefly uh, with you a number of the characteristics of the office of Christ as our Redeemer. And firstly, we shall consider the office in terms of its correlation between the two chapters that we have read. For in both chapters we see much of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and his everlasting gospel to a lost world, as testified by himself, as it is he that speaks here 
in the verses of our text in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. And we recognize, of course, that the, the records of uh, both chapters uh, are presented to us and relayed under the type and the figure of Isaiah's calling and a prominence given to him of God, which was to foretell in prophecy the deliverance of the Jews out of the Babylonian captivity. Practically and historically, as a scriptural record, this is, of course, uh, the case. However, it is the messianic interpretation that I want us to dwell upon this morning, uh, and principally this view of our everlasting uh, Redeemer. The obvious similarities that grab our attention are the references to the Holy Spirit resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 42, uh, God the Father confirms this by saying, I have put my Spirit upon him. And then in chapter 61, the Lord testifies, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And then secondly, there is the expression of the rule of the redemptive uh, office in chapter 42. We read there that the Messiah will come to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. And then in chapter 61, we uh, read the Lord's testimony of how he has been anointed to preach good tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And thirdly, by way of direct example, uh, and I would say happily for us, uh, is that blessed set of references to the very specific focus upon the Lord's chosen people among the Gentile nations and the Lord's covenant with them, that as the Israel of the Redeemer are restored, there is that blessed engrafting of the Gentile believers to His church. And I suppose as we enter this consideration, we see that there is, secondly, uh, that this is a covenant-based office. Verses, uh, verse 6 of chapter 42 declares, I, the Lord, will give thee for a covenant of the people, uh, for a light of the Gentiles. And this is reciprocated in the chapter 61, where the Lord, in speaking of his chosen people, exclaims in verses 8 and 9, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the peoples. And listen to this blessed line. This really thrills my soul this morning. It says, All that see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. And the importance of this uh, for us this morning is in the, the questioning thought. What if back in the realm of the everlasting. The Lord had not shown favor towards those outside the house of Israel. What if at the, at the cross, 
the Savior's passion and sacrifice was singularly for Israel and specifically for the tribe of Judah. Or after Calvary, as the New Testament age began to roll out, Paul, the servant of the Lord, had actually turned in a different direction that day at Troas, but rather was led by the Holy Ghost in the way that he went, that the Gentiles also might be saved. And we thank the Lord that in his prophecy, Isaiah declares in in chapter 60 in the verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to thy light, depicting as this does the glory of the Lord's church and the abundant access of the Gentiles. And then in fulfillment of this prophecy, it is recorded for us in the book of Acts chapter 11 and verse 1, that the Gentiles had received the Word of God. And in verse 18, it further testifies, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Yes, you see, they also had heard the Christ preached. They had witnessed the attendance of the Holy Ghost upon the preaching of the truth to their souls. And they had received words that whereby they and all their house shall be saved. Thirdly, we cannot ignore the fulfillment of the office through its confirmation in the Scriptures of the New Testament era. And here we look at the confirmation of the office, not just the correlation and the covenant nature of it, but also the confirmation of it. We have seen uh, the correlation of the passages uh, between Isaiah 42 and 61, and yet it is always an excitement when we see passages of that which is written in the Old Testament then expressed clearly and uh, strongly and fulfilled within the New Testament uh, text. And, And these passages that we have read uh, are, are no different. They are, are a very good example. And turn then, if you would, please, to the gospel according to Luke. Luke's gospel, chapter 4, and the verse 16. And notice, if you would, please, the intended uh, familiarity and the alignment with our text. Luke four sixteen, And he, that is the Lord Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, which we know as Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it to the minister and sat down. 
And the people's eyes, of course, were fixed in a gaze upon him. And I feel the same transfixing when you consider that the passage we have just read, those three verses that we have before us and upon the pages of Scripture, and which we have read and are considering this morning, are the very texts that the Lord read in the temple or the synagogue at Nazareth that day. How wonderful a thought that is. And as we marvel, it seems that the people there marveled that of all that they heard of him and from him. And it says there that there went out a fame of him all the region round about. You see, it appears that the one who is the best expositor of Scripture has no doubt given the best exposition uh, of these verses that we are considering uh, uh, today. And as he read in the synagogue at Nazareth, no doubt it was the lesson uh, for the day. And the minister there didn't need to expound any further. He found himself redundant because the Lord himself had just spoken. And applying it entirely to himself, the Lord Jesus Christ declared, This day is Scripture fulfilled in your ears, as it indicates at verse 21. And the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, speaking of himself, in the opening of this, this text before them, Surely the people admired and wondered and joyed, and their hearts were warmed. The confirmation of the office by the Lord Himself. But I must move on quickly now to consider with you fourthly His competency for the office. Oh, how He was fitted and qualified for this work. He testifies there in verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. What a qualification for this role. The prophets had the Spirit of God moving uh, them at times, both instructing them what to say and exciting them as they said it. But the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, had the Spirit always but always resting on him, and that without measure, but obviously to the same intention that the prophets had to to be a spirit of counsel and indeed a spirit of, of courage. Turn, if you would now, please, to another portion of Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 3, which set out some of the specific competencies of the office, linked as uh, it were to his entering into the scene of time, his being filled in the flesh, and becoming the God-man. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 3, and it says there, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. 
And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, the spirit of knowledge and quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, righteousness and faithfulness in perfection. No ordinary man, brethren and sisters, was thus so excellently qualified. And again, by way of fulfillment of this prophecy, we we recall that when he entered upon the execution of his prophetical office, the Holy Spirit as a dove descended upon him. And we recall the Scriptures of Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16, where it says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, and here is the the confirmation of his competency, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We move on quickly from the competency of the office to his commission to the office. And here, fifthly, we see also uh, this commission. He was appointed and ordained uh, to it from everlasting, from before creation and before the beginning of time, before man Had ever sinned, God had provided a reconciling ransom in His own dear Son. He says, The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord God has anointed me. And we can see then that the office of the everlasting Redeemer has been established very clearly in the fullness of the mystery of the Trinity. And way back in the everlasting, there was a council between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. And the way of our reconciliation, the way of our cleansing, the way of our salvation through a Redeemer was set and it was commissioned in Him And uh, yes, wicked hands may have laid hold upon Jesus and led him away. Sinful, unregenerate men may have taken him to the cross and there crucified him. But it was a plan made in the everlasting by the Trinity. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 bears it out. For it says very powerfully, and I love to read these words every time I 
come across them, where it says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The Father anointing the Son to the task of man's reconciliation and salvation under the power of the Holy Ghost. It cannot be denied. Indeed, we must conclude that every aspect of the triune God has a part in our redemption. What service God called him to, he furnished him for. Therefore, he gave him his Spirit because he had, by a sacred and solemn unction, set him apart to this great office, as kings and priests of old were destined to their their office by anointing. Hence, our Redeemer was called the Messiah, the Christ, because he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Notice he says there, he has sent me. Our Lord Jesus did not go unsent. He had a commission from him that is the fountain of all power, the font of all knowledge. The Father sent him. The Father gave him commandment. And in his love and passion for the Father, he carried out that will and finished it every jot and every tittle with perfection once for all. This is the great satisfaction for us, that whatever the Lord Jesus Christ has said and done for us, he is the warrant from heaven to do it and to say it. Time's flying away quickly. So we move in the sixth place to consider his compassion within the office. As our prophet, priest, and king, we are appraised of the work to which he was appointed and ordained. The Lord says in verse 1, He hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. That's verse 1 of Isaiah 61. There we realize that he was to be a preacher, and he was to execute the office of a prophet. And so well pleased was he with the goodwill uh, that God the Father had shown towards men through him, that he would himself be the preacher of it and the provider of it, that an honor might thereby be put onto the ministry of the gospel, and the faith of the saints would be confirmed and encouraged. He must preach the good tidings of the gospel to the meek and to the penitent and to the humble and to the poor in spirit, and to them the tidings of such a Redeemer will be good tidings indeed. They are the pure gospel. They are faithful sayings and worthy of all acceptation. He was also to be a healer, sent to bind up the brokenhearted, and we would think of that, uh, brethren and sisters, that was our own position as we sought to find deliverance, sensing the burden and the impact of our original sin, our continually sinful lives, 
and our resultant separation from the goodness of God as we declined towards destruction. As pained limbs are ruled uh, to give them ease, as broken bones and bleeding wounds are bound up that they may knit and close again, those whose hearts are broken for sin, who are truly humbled under the sense of guilt and the dread of wrath, are furnished in the gospel of Christ with that which brings joy and brings relief, and which silences silences eternal fears. Those only who have experienced the pains of penitential contrition can truly expect the pleasure of the divine comforts and consolations. He would also be a deliverer. You see, he was sent as a prophet to preach. To preach. He was sent as a priest to heal and to pray. And as our king, he would come to issue two great proclamations. Firstly, the proclamation of peace to his chosen people. Peace, eternal peace for his elect ones. He shall proclaim liberty to the captives, it says in our, in, in our portion. Just the same as, uh, in the same way as Cyrus uh, declared uh, liberty to the Jews who were in captivity. Our Lord declared the opening of the prison to those that were bound. Whereas by the guilt of sin, those outside of Christ, and if you're unsaved this morning, I would ask that you listen very carefully. Whereas by the guilt of sin, those outside of Christ are bound over to the justice of God, being his lawful and rightful captives, sold for sin till payment be made of such a great debt. In these words of liberation to the captives who are as people the Savior declares, I have made satisfaction. I have paid the price to divine justice for your debt. And his satisfaction with God the Father is accepted. And if we will plead that, and if we will depend upon that and nothing else, and make ourselves and all we have over to him, in a grateful sense for the atonement that he has made for us, we may by faith sue out our pardon and take the full comfort and assurance from it. Assurance, brethren and sisters, that there shall be no longer any accusation or any condemnation uh, to us. He also proclaims, uh, secondly, victory over death and sin and Satan over principalities and powers. What a 
proclamation that is. And herein the Lord Jesus Christ lets us know that he has conquered Satan. He has destroyed him that had the power of death and his works. Colossians uh, chapter 2 and the verse 15 confirms that this. It says of our Savior that he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He has provided grace that is fully sufficient for us, enabling us to shake off the yoke of sin as the years go by, dying more and more unto sin and living more and more unto righteousness. In His redemption office, God the Son, by the power of His blood and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, makes us free, and we are and shall be free indeed. Not only discharged from the miseries of sin's captivity, but advanced to all the immunities and honors of the heavenly citizens. This is the great gospel proclamation. You see, when its light shone into our darkness in the prison house of our sin, it was like the blowing of the jubilee trumpet, just as it was, uh, it says there in Leviticus, uh, in the great year of release for Israel from, from Babylon's captivity. The trumpets blew, the trumpets of liberty, so it was likewise in our experience when he proclaims, uh, as it is in our passage, the acceptable year of the Lord. In our experience, that means the time of our acceptance with God. The time when we knelt at the foot of the old rugged cross there at Calvary's tree, when we saw our need of him, put our trust eternally in our everlasting Redeemer. The acceptable year of the Lord indicates the, the origin of our liberty. It publishes His free grace for His own glory. And it is an acceptable year because it brings glad tidings to us and to the necessities of our soul. We were dead in our sins, and the uncircumcision of our flesh hath he quickened together with himself, having forgiven us all our trespasses, blotted out all the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. And how wonderful always is this statement, and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross. Our experience, brethren and sisters, in sin was one of misery and darkness and incarceration and binding and enslavement. The very appearance of being a slave to sin and Satan, together with the sorrow and mourning that accompanies this and an oppressive heaviness under a burden of guilt and sin. 
but our Redeemer came swiftly for us. Came swiftly to us as the mourners in Zion and brought to us a totally liberating experience, being indeed our deliverer. As verse 3 terms it for us, bringing beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified, and that we might glorify Him as trees of righteousness because we witness for Him and of Him to others. Trees of righteousness amongst men and women that live around us, that they too might know this blessed and everlasting Redeemer. Which brings us to the final point of our study this morning, His comforting through the office. His comforting us through the office. And we see His comforting uh, through those verses that I have just quoted, where He is a preacher and a healer and a deliverer. He is also our comforter. He is sent to comfort all who mourn, and who mourning seek to Him and not the world for comfort. Christ, our Redeemer, provides comfort for us in our times of sorrow, in our times of trial, in our times of temptation, applying the same to us by the power of the Holy Ghost who draws alongside us to bring that comfort that is necessary at the very point of our need. And we know that there is that all-sufficiency in Him and in Him alone to comfort all who mourn. No matter what our sores or what our sorrows may be, where tears may fall for many a reason, God our Comforter has a bottle for them all. We know this from the Psalms. You'll recall Psalm 56 and verse 8 where it says, Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? You see, no matter what our sorrows and our sores and our trials and temptations and troubles may be, with such a comforter that we have in our everlasting Redeemer, we need but carry such sorrows to the throne of grace and pour them out there and leave them with Him. As we come now to a close, we recall again just those words where he brings to them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Think for a moment on beauty for ashes. 
Where we lay in the ashes of sin, He raised us up out of the dust and bestowed upon us the beauty of the redeemed. He gave us that holy cheerfulness of the saints as a beauty and a great ornament of our profession in Him. For us, He has turned the the sorrows of sin into joy. And where sin has scarred us, rather the oil of joy makes our faces to shine. Instead of mourning, which disfigures the countenance and and makes it unlovely, the beauty of Christ-likeness is like the ornaments and jewels that adorn the bride awaiting the arrival of her bridegroom. We have this oil of joy because of that oil of gladness with which Christ Himself was anointed above His fellows, whose throne is forever and ever, and the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of His kingdom. For God gives the oil of joy to us, then He gives us the garment of praise. The Redeemer's majesty in His office is the fullness of His, his righteousness, and the garment of Christ's righteousness is imputed to us through and by the Holy Ghost. And this surely, surely, brethren and sisters, provokes in us the spirit of praise and the spirit of prayerful intercession that ever thanksgiving within our souls will rise, enlarging our hearts in eternal thanksgivings to God our Father, for the one who is indeed our Redeemer from everlasting. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy, shall I lift up my head. This spotless robe the same appears when ruined nature sinks in years. No age can change its glorious hue. The robe of Christ, His righteousness upon us, the righteousness of our everlasting Redeemer is ever new. May the Lord bless His Word to all our hearts this day, shall we bow once again together in prayer. Our loving God and eternal Heavenly Father, it is with much thankfulness and praise in our hearts that we Uh, Father, glorify Thee and praise Thee for our blessed Redeemer. Where would we be, Heavenly Father, if Thou hadst not looked upon us with kindness and with favor in the everlasting? 
We thank thee, O God, that thou who art and was and ever shall be, ever set your affection upon us. For the blessed Savior who made haste to Calvary, bearing our sins in his body to the tree, provided that perfect redemption. And, O Father, we thank thee for the gift of thy Holy Spirit that joys our hearts in the reading of thy word and in interceding before thy throne. We thank thee, Heavenly Father, that thou hast said, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Lord, do us good this day. Continue with us in the midst. Bless in the prayer time. Bless Mr. Greer as he would come to lead the meeting and to bring before us the fullness of thy counsel. Bless our brother, the Reverend Stuart, as he would travel to Bangor this morning. Do him and the congregation there good with thy presence and with thy fullness of joy. We do ask these things in our blessed Savior's name for his and thine everlasting praise and eternal glory. Amen.